You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 17th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. They told me they were going to conduct a thorough, complete, transparent investigation. They made a commitment to, to hold uh, anyone connected to any wrongdoing that may be found accountable for that, whether they are uh, a senior officer or official, uh, they promised accountability. Case closed, Detective Pompeo, or is there the slender possibility that Saudi Arabia is not being altogether forthcoming about its role in the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi? My guests Peter Goodman and Michael Binion will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including America's desire for new trade deals, including with the UK, but will it come soon enough to save Britain from Brexit? Canada's first day of decriminalisation of marijuana use and government by grand gesture, and and are female politicians inherently less corruptible? One African Prime Minister thinks so. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Michael Binion, Foreign Affairs Specialist for The Times, and Peter Goodman, Global Economic Correspondent for The New York Times. Welcome both. We will start with the diplomatic and journalistic circus still attending the disappearance of Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, who walked into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul more than a fortnight ago and has not been seen since. US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is now in Turkey, having already visited Saudi Arabia, where he faithfully relayed Riyadh's denial of any wrongdoing. And while verifiable details of Khashoggi's fate remain thin on the ground, this has not stopped various outlets from reporting them, often in lurid detail. Um, Michael, what do we actually know at this point? There is an awful lot of stuff now floating around about what has befallen uh, Jamal Khashoggi. I think it's safe to assume, depressingly at this point, that nothing good uh, has befallen him. But what do we actually know for certain? We seem to know that there was some kind of recording that came out of his time in the consulate. Now, uh, the story is that it's... uh, somehow on his watch or something, but we seem to know that the Turks have access to some kind of information which they're not uh, making official, though they're leaking it, which is the way to they want to do it. largely pro-government Turkish To pro-government ta- papers and to other Middle Eastern outlets. Middle Eastern Eye, for example, has an extremely gruesome account of the dismemberment of his body and the fact that he was screaming and all sorts of things. The whole thing took seven minutes, apparently. Uh, but we don't know whether those details are correct. What we do know is that the Turks certainly seem to have access to some kind of information uh, which has alerted them that something terrible has happened to him. We certainly know he hasn't, he hasn't come out of the consulate. Uh, so by deduction, we assume he went in, he's not come out, the body's not there, the body therefore must have been removed somehow. Um, Peter, the, these reports of audio and video recordings, uh, they are hideous. Um, and as Michael correctly points out, they appear to be being leaked to pro-government newspapers by official Turkish sources. Um, would you be happy to wave them into print as a, uh, you know, a definitive account of what had happened to Khashoggi? Are you convinced by them? 
Well, I mean, it certainly does seem like there's a lot of information that adds up to uh, Khashoggi goes into the consulate, doesn't come out, and and we get details like, you know, an autopsy expert has been flown in with a crack team of, you know, 15 uh, bodyguards, paramilitary uh, figures, I mean, people who've done work for the Saudi regime. And it turns out that when you piece together photos and web history, that you can find of the people who we know did, in fact, fly in and flew out less than 24 hours later from from uh, from Saudi Arabia to Istanbul. Uh, these are people who've been very close to uh, MBS. These are people who have worked uh, alongside in, in security details and who certainly have the skills to have done what they're alleged to have done. So, you know, at this point, absent some other story, it, it, it certainly looks like uh, the details that, that we're piecing together do amount to a very grisly and, and uh, horrendous murder. I mean, it, it does seem clear enough, or you would think, unless there's some other, other whole layer of 20-dimensional chess going on, that if the Saudis could prove uh, that Jamal Khashoggi was still alive or had left the building under his own steam, then they would have offered that evidence up by now. Um, Michael, speaking with your sort of diplomatic correspondent hat on, what do you make of Turkey's response to it? Because I, I mean, I would have thought my my bar for standards of behaviour by visiting diplomats may be set a bit higher than theirs. I don't think the Saudis would have pulled a stunt like this in Washington or London or Paris, which rather suggests that they that they have a, a slightly lower opinion of Turkey as a place where you can get away with this kind of thing. Why would Turkey by now not have told every Saudi diplomatic mission in Turkey not to pack up and get out? Well, because the Turks are hoping to profit from this. First of all, they're hoping to reintegrate themselves with their NATO allies. I mean, they've been really out on a limb until recently. True enough. Uh, they of, certainly... of, of their own... Oh, yes, of their own choosing, but it's actually come back to bite them. I mean, their currency has been in free fall until recently. Um, they have been in a trade war with the Americans. They've got on the wrong side of Trump. They've been really, really uh, shunned. And suddenly they see the chance not only to uh, re-sort of be helpful to their Western friends, but also to uh, rather undercut Saudi Arabia for the leadership uh, or spiritual leadership, perhaps. They'll never be completely the spiritual leaders, but their version of Islam might be the one that they hope would be acceptable and interesting. Now, I think the other thing that the Turks have also got a card that they haven't yet played, but there's a very glaring card that's absolutely devastating, and that is, what about the Skripals? It's absolutely analogous, the case of Saudi Arabia and Russia. Mm. Russia sends a hit squad over to try to kill, in a rather gruesome way, a person that they thought was uh, a menace. They didn't actually succeed, but they tried. And uh, Britain and the rest of the West immediately reacted, saying it's absolutely unacceptable to kill someone on someone else's territory in this way. And the goons were exposed. I mean, they were caught because of photo identification of them going in and out of airports. Now, if it's wrong for the Russians to do it, it's just as wrong for Saudi Arabia to try to kill someone using goons flown in on someone else's territory. And if you're going to have pretty draconian sanctions or, or diplomatic expulsions for, of Russians, presumably you should do the same of Saudis. Peter, what have you made of the United States reaction so far? Because if you're looking at it charitably, you could say that this is 
it's basically a responsible holding pattern that you might undertake while you try to figure out what in the wide world of sports has actually gone on here. But it could equally be interpreted as a certain amount of, uh, well, in, in indifference verging on outright collaboration. I mean, to the extent to which the Trump administration does grand strategy, it's transactional. And in the case of Saudi Arabia, you're talking about the world's largest exporter of oil. You're talking about a major purchaser of arms. The U.S. sells an awful lot of arms to Saudi Arabia. To say nothing of uh, the individual business dealings that the Trump organization has had uh, with the Saudis over the years. I mean, the Saudi government bought a floor of a, a Trump skyscraper in New York, uh, purchased a yacht at a time when Trump was having uh, serious uh, problems with uh, American bankruptcy law. And, and, and of course, uh, we learned that uh, Trump hotels see surges in occupancy when the Saudis go and visit places like New York and Washington. So, you know, with Trump, Trump, it's usually about the money on on some level. And uh, certainly anything that we hear from the administration has to be discounted uh, and subject to some scrutiny with that in mind. Now, in, in terms of the broader picture, you know, it's very clear that Trump came into office and decided that he was going to undo this pivot that Obama was engineering away from Saudi Arabia and toward Iran. I mean, it was a long game. Iran has uh, presents all sorts of problems in terms of human rights, in terms of financing terrorist organizations around the world. But there is, there is a sense, uh, certainly when you talk to Democrats in Washington, that Iran, if you're thinking most uh, long term, is a much more natural ally of the West uh, than than Saudi Arabia, which has been you know extremely anti-democratic, shows no inclinations toward reform, and for Trump, the Saudis are the anchor of of his policy in the Middle East. I mean. The, the continued uh, financing of the rebels in, in Yemen, uh, the potential support uh, for, for Israel. I mean, they are the arch enemy of, of, of the Iranians. So, I mean, to the extent to which we can divine a strategy, it's let's make sure that American defense contractors don't lose any money and let's make sure that the Trump policy doesn't get redone. Well, on a semi-related note, let's move along, or as may be more appropriate, brace ourselves and look at President Donald Trump's latest large thoughts about trade. The US wants to negotiate, it says here, three separate trade agreements with Japan, the UK and the EU. The division of the latter two is, of course, the most interesting. One of the more ardently treasured fantasies of Brexiteers was the idea of a seamless free trade deal with the United States. However, lest Prime Minister Theresa May get too excited as she prepares prepares for another couple of days of having having it explained to her by her EU counterparts that this is all insane and won't work, Washington does not expect negotiations to even start for several months. Um, Peter, these new trade agreements that are being discussed here with Japan, the UK and the EU, is, is this going to be the NAFTA thing all over again, i.e. change very little but the name of it to some completely unpronounceable acronym and, huh. then, and then declare declare triumph? Uh, I mean, if it amounted to what NAFTA amounts to, that would be uh, pretty dramatic compared to what we've got here. Because, I mean, trade between the U.S. and the U.K. is already very liberalized. Tariffs are low. There's not much uh, that can be done that's going to deliver uh, much in the way economic growth through a trade deal. Uh, the areas that are not liberalized involve uh, lobbies that are going to protect it at all costs. I mean, financial services, are our British financial services firms going to live under American financial regulations at a time when uh, Brexiteers are talking about becoming Singapore by the sea in terms of de 
deregulating to deal with whatever threat they face uh, from from jobs and business moving across the channel post-Brexit. You you see a a similar dynamic in agriculture. There's a lot of agricultural protection, uh, both for for British agriculture, for American agriculture. Anytime you start talking about bringing down barriers, the politics are are quickly going to get complicated. Are are Brits prepared to start uh, importing chlorine-washed chicken wings from the United States or or, uh, genetically modified crops? I mean, this this is a hairball of a problem, and that's to get to a deal that's really not all that consequential in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Michael, is is there any imaginable trade deal with the U.S., uh, especially as as Peter points out, that it's already fairly liberalised, that it is going to make up for what is lost by Brexit? No way. I mean, just look at the percentage of how much trade goes to Europe and how much goes to America. Uh, and okay, Jaguar but, cars. But all that'll well. change after Brexit. Michael. Well, will it? I mean, what do we need to buy from America? First of all, it costs much more to ship it from America than it does from you know from Europe. You just put it on the train or whatever. It depends what it is. But uh, the other thing, though, is that people forget the Americans are extremely hardball trade negotiators. It's not going to be. You know, we speak the same language. We've got lots of nice old historic links. No way, America. Americans play hardball and I sometimes say dirty ball when they negotiate trade. And Britain has not had to negotiate a trade deal for 30 something years. Uh, we don't have people who can do it. We would be outmaneuvered, outfoxed within 10 minutes and uh, we would get a very bad deal. Well, on the following on from that, that that ringing endorsement of his, his people's abilities to, to to negotiate difficult situations, there, Peter. I, I did want to ask you have been reporting for the New York Times on, I guess, a related subject about Brexit preppers. Um, is, is this that was a, not me personally? Well, the New York have, Times yes. have have been reporting right. on Brexit yeah. preppers. Is is this actually a thing? Brexit preppers? Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, and should there be more of us, I guess, is what I'm asking. I, I speak as somebody who I think has two cans of tuna in the cupboard at home. Tell me what a Brexit prepper I mean, is. A prepper is someone who is hoarding food oh, and I medicine yeah, yeah. and other goods okay. that they worry will not be available when Brexit comes. I mean, look. You've cle- you're clearly not one of them. Michael. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my stock answer here is that anyone who thinks uh, they have an authoritative sense of how Brexit's going to end up has no idea what's actually going on. Uh, I mean, there's a, a, there's a jump ball here. And it is certainly possible that we will wake up one day and discover that Britain has crashed out of the European Union without a deal, and there will need to be borders. And uh, that will involve phytosanitary checks for food coming through the tunnel from Europe to Britain. And I mean, again, I mean, Britain has not had to do things like inspect crops that have come in from another country uh, for, or at least in the case of Europe, uh, for, for some time. I mean, the, the capacity to check, you know, cut flowers coming in from the Netherlands uh, to make sure that there's, there's no sort of infestation. It's not, that, it's not that there are lots of these government officials just sitting around waiting for that opportunity. So, you know, uh, are these people crazy? Maybe. Uh, are they imagining a scenario that's totally unimaginable that we'd have a hard time getting medicines and food? No, I mean, lots of weird things are possible in today's world. Well, that's something to look forward to. Um, Michael, just returning to these uh, putative US trade deals with Japan, the UK and the EU, is, 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 there, is there any amount of this which, which factors into Donald Trump's somewhat chaotic trade war with China? Not directly. Um, I mean, to the extent that America still needs to trade, and America's biggest trade is with China, therefore, if there's going to be a trade war, you need to reinforce other trade links. Otherwise, exporters will be looking pretty 
pretty uh, aghast and pretty sore. And Japan, again, there's actually, there's the same potential, or there was certainly the same row with Japan as there has been with China, that Japan is selling too much to America and that it's undercutting American industry. Uh, I think that's, uh, the emphasis is rather different at the moment. But certainly as a backstop, it would be um, helpful to Trump if he could show, I'm not just disrupting global trade, look at the other deals I've done, and these are they. But there's no way new trade deals can be negotiated in a few months. These sometimes take years and years. And I mean, as far as Britain is concerned, it's going to be far too late for any uh, offset of Brexit. And as far as America is concerned, the political bonus is also going to come too late. OK, we're going to take a short break now, during which we might all be nipping out to buy large sacks of rice. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, Michael Binion and Peter Goodman. Coming up next, Canada, where the legalisation of marijuana does not appear to have reduced the country to a demented and depraved Gomorrah, but it is only day one. Curtains up. Premiering in Monocle's October issue is our very first culture preview. From big box film releases to the art market's latest moves, we guide you through all you need to watch, see and read this autumn. On our global tour, we take a peek into Helsinki's newest museum to find out how Finland's art scene is stepping up its game and consider the future of Nordic noir. Is the Scandi bubble about to burst? Not to mention more finds from Switzerland to Taiwan. In our fashion pages, our bi-annual Top 50 will deliver all the scarves, coats and knits you need to keep cosy and suitably sharp. Autumnal breeze or not, Tom Ford isn't afraid to bear it all. We hear from the American designer on why it's the perfect time to launch a line of underwear. We sit down with Iceland's Prime Minister to find out how the left-wing environmentalist thawed her countrymen's suspicion of politicians and get a few tips from developers and retailers making the high street worth celebrating. Plus, we meet the architects rethinking our homes for a more sustainable future. The Monocle October issue is out now on all good newsstands. Do get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Peter Goodman and Michael Binion. And let's look now at Canada, where today almost certainly a plurality of newspapers have published cartoons in which the maple leaf on the national flag has been replaced with something else. Canada has become officially just the second country on earth to legalise the recreational use of cannabis. This will inevitably prompt a national conversation, if one likely to be punctuated by an amount of giggling and wondering if there are any more Pringles. And this prompts the question of whether this is a model for governance, making the grand gesture and leaving the people to figure out what they make of it. Um, Peter, first of all, to this particular grand gesture, granted this is early in the experiment, but is, is there any chance Canada ends up regretting this, do you think? There's a chance Canada ends up regretting this if it turns out hordes of American tourists come charging over the border in pursuit of not only Pringles, but also <laughs> leafy green butt. See, uh, th- th- this would have genuinely been my concern, the Amsterdam effect, because Amsterdam's commendably liberal attitudes to also all sorts of things also turned it into a magnet for some of the world's most tedious people. But, but, but here's the thing. I mean, Washington State, which borders Canada, has legalized pot. Colorado's legalized pot. California... 
Uh, there are initiatives underway in many other states. So, I mean, while through a British lens, this may still seem peculiar, this is the way North America is going. And, and in Canada, I mean, it's worth noting, reports have found that if you survey people between 15 and 24 years of age, a third of them have consumed cannabis in some form sometime in the previous three months. So it's not as if there's some sort of revolutionary change to life in Canada. Now, there is a significant commercial change and legal change in people who have criminal records records because, you know, years ago they got caught uh, with a couple of joints in their pocket are now going to be pardoned. And that's a logistical issue. But no, I mean, it seems sort of hard to imagine that in in this day and age, this is going to lead to some tremendous rethink. Uh, Michael, do you like what it represents in terms of of governance? Because I think especially in the West, and this may even be an explanation uh, that I have just now invented for the the, the rise of populism around the developed world, there there has been a tend towards government by kind of managerial tinkering, just sort of adjusting a few things here and there, assuming everything's basically all right, but there's always things you can fiddle with. But this is the the, the grand sweeping revolutionary gesture. Is there something Uh, to be said for them? Yes. Yes, but only in certain areas. I mean, there's something to be said for this sort of grand gesture, particularly in social policy. I think it's much more difficult if you suddenly take an economic leap into the dark, uh, as we've heard about uh, uh, the Indians who decided to abolish certain high-level, high-denomination notes. Which went incredibly badly. Well, it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> yes, it really was. It nearly cost the government its, its, its majority. I mean, it, it was a disaster. It didn't work at all. But a, a grand economic gesture not thought through is pretty stupid. A social uh, piece of legislation can be very controversial. Uh, The Swiss, for example, decide to legalize euthanasia in certain clinics. Now, that's still fairly controversial. I thought you were going to say give women the vote. That that, that only came quite recently. Exactly, which they only did reasonably recently. But things like that, or, I mean, for example, uh, gay marriage, I mean, that's still quite controversial, but nobody knew whether this was going to lead to um, the most uh, furious civil rights um, arguments or whatever. Um, But we've got the analogy there that people who had been convicted um, for sexual crimes where homosexuality was illegal are now having been pardoned, just as people who were convicted of cannabis crimes in uh, Canada are now able to go to the courts and get their convictions wiped out. But this is all in the field of social legislation. I don't think governments can really afford to just chuck it to the wind and see where it blows. And certainly not in economic terms. I mean, at a much smaller level, the one that le- the example that leapt to my mind was the one of uh, Tirana in the early part of this century, where the then mayor uh, Eddie Rama, who is now the prime minister, just just basically had the entire city painted all sorts of bright colours in in all sorts of weird designs, in stripes and polka dots and lightning bolts and checks. Uh, and when I asked him about it the first time I met him, he did say, well, partly he he, he likes colours, but he he said he did want to actually cause the citizens to have a conversation about what they wanted their city to be like. If you don't want it painted all sorts of weird colours, what do you want, was his point. Uh, are there similar examples which have worked or could work? Peter, just before we came on air, we, we were talking about the righteousness of banning umbrellas. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, if someone came in to ban umbrellas, they might get my vote and your vote. Uh, not but, mine. I mean, not to be too flip. You know, Canada's a democracy. 
Uh, so this is not some sort of wild uh, jump uh, to nowhere from a government that lacked a mandate. Uh, nobody in India, to my knowledge, uh, went to the polls and said, yes, let's ban all 500 rupee denomination notes. That'll be great and fun. Uh, any more than uh, anyone in Britain went to the polls and said, yes, let's have a double Irish backstop uh, in the event that we can't uh, negotiate a free trade agreement by the end of the uh, transition period. So the Canadians, they voted for a prime minister who said, if I'm elected, I'm going to legalize pot. And that's that's what he's delivered. And and they have had this experiment with uh, with medical pot going back to 2001. So let's be fair to the Canadians here. They've thought they've put some thinking into this. OK, well, finally tonight uh, to Ethiopia, the new prime minister of which Adi Ahmed has already proved himself a fan of the sweeping gesture, not least abruptly ending several decades of official hostility towards neighbouring Eritrea. He's done it again while announcing his new cabinet, allotting half the positions to female ministers, not merely on grounds of gender parity, but because, as he declared, women are less corrupt than men, and for this and other reasons better placed to engender peace and stability. Uh, we will now do that fun thing where three men sit in a studio talking about the uh, the benefits of, of gender. <laughs> well, in, in, indeed so. Um, Michael, first of all, his argument that women are inherently less corrupt or corruptible than men, are we buying that, do we think? Well, it's difficult to measure it, but I would have said instinctively, looking at the cases, yes, that's probably true. Um, The cases of women corruptly trying to enrich themselves from their position, well, not very many women have been in the position where they can. Indeed so. But there have been. um, I can think of Tansu Chile, Prime Minister of Turkey, who was perhaps one of the least successful Prime Ministers ever to have held office in Turkey, and she was accused of corruption after leaving office. One or two other female politicians have, but on the whole, no. And particularly if you compare their record, women's record, as um, legislators, to men's records. Uh, It's also that women do have perhaps a more holistic view of how policy should be conducted. And in fact, neighbouring Rwanda, or not very far away Rwanda, has already had a similar policy to their great credit. And women are uh, equal or... I'm right in saying it has the most female parliament in the world, yes, if not the cabinet. I mean, yes, that's right. And I mean, that is a, a tremendous achievement. And uh, it's, um, I think, a, a surprise. Well, it's not surprising coming from the Ethiopian prime minister, who seems to be uh, pushing through one sensible reform after the other almost every week. I mean, the man is a miracle. I, I don't quite know whether it'll all survive and whether he'll get it through the bureaucracy. But certainly he's been surprising in the number of sensible things he's done. Um, Peter, there is a a reflexive grumble uh, against any initiatives like this, which is always that, you know, that this ends up discriminating against somebody, that it should all be done solely on merit, to which the obvious retort, and one with which I have to say I sympathise, is that that we have, as a gender, been getting the run of the place pretty much for some considerable time now, like uh, the entire recording of human history, and that therefore, you know, it's it's time that compensatory gestures were made. Um, do you think this is, that, that that's basically an argument that stands up, that, that actual steps should be taken to try and redress imbalances of this sort? I mean, there's certainly an equity argument, yes, in terms of uh, arguing that uh, governments should be representative in part, that is, about equity. But, but 
there's a better argument. I mean, I, I, I think this notion that you put women in, in positions of power because they're they're less corruptible than men. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. How, how do you test that proposition? That seems like a sort of wacky reason for doing the right thing. The right thing is to have representative government because that way you're more in touch with what's actually happening in your society. I mean, if you're going to run a society that is not representative, not, not just in terms of gender, but in terms of class, in terms of race then you are putting together a government that's comprised of people who are not really in touch with uh, the lives uh, of the people who are out there in the society they're governing. It does in that, when when put like that, Michael, it it does seem weirdly overdue that we've got to 2018 and it still seems vaguely surprising uh, when the cabinet of a given country is, is half or majority female. Yes. I mean, Sweden has made attempts to have a pretty uh, healthy gender balance. And I think Sweden, it's certainly not quite half, but the very large number of cabinet ministers in Sweden or in Scandinavia generally, this has been a tradition, but it's never been uh, a majority. And it's certainly not been taken. um, It's been taken for steps of equality. I think that's the reason it's been taken for the right reason. Uh, But consider uh, Sweden has had much, much longer to think about these sort of uh, measures for gender respect and equality. In some African countries, this has been far, far from their thinking. So they've jumped forward much faster and therefore more commendably. Well, weirdly, and I I know because I looked this up, uh, the world's most female-dominated cabinet is presently Spain, uh, which has 11 female ministers, six male ones. Um, Strangely, Peter, and I don't really know what to make of this or if there's anything to say about it, the UK figures very low down the list of European countries in terms of gender balance in its cabinet, uh, the fact of its female prime minister notwithstanding. Uh, that's a that's a puzzle. Uh, I think it's fair to say that if you don't have large numbers of women in the government, then you probably don't have the best and brightest running the country because women are half the population. Moreover, women know about aspects of life that are crucial to understanding how to run a health system, uh, how to run schools. I mean, women bring the children into creation. Uh, women in, in places like Africa do you know all of the cooking. They gather the firewood and the water. They're in touch with natural resources. They do all the work. They, 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 do, they do most of the really crucial work. So if, if you want policies that are reflective of reality, you have to have a representative government. Uh, the irony is, of course, when Britain had its first female prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, she hated having other women in the cabinet. And she del- she didn't have any, as far as I remember. Uh, all those pictures of her in the middle and then all her male ministers around her. Uh, and somebody said, well, you know, she does, she's no token for women's representation by any means. I mean, Theresa May has, I think, um, made a bit of a better effort, but she's not really concerned about gender balance. She's, of course, completely wrapped up in trying to do the job she's she's now got, but we'll see. Which is kind of where we came in. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Michael Binion and Peter Goodman, thank you for joining us. Today's show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was Sarah Miles. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel. We'll have more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Paul Osborne is your host for that. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'll be hosting that, if I recall rightly. Uh, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>